Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Jeff Mills. Tonight on Fast, Disney gets dinged. The stock falling 3% on new growth concerns for Disney+. Plus. We'll break down how our traders are playing the streaming news. Plus, flipping out, Zillow plunging 9% as the company hits the pause button. On buying and flipping new houses, we'll tell you why Zillow is taking a home buying halt. And later, shares of AMC in rally mode today, and we spotted some unusual options activity on this name. We'll break down that action. But we start off with the biotech breakdown. The XBI biotech ETF feeling a little bit under the weather again today. The index falling 2%. It's now down 7.5% over the past month. That is compared to a 1% gain for the broader market. So if you're in the biotech trade, should you brace for more sick days ahead? or healthy gains right on the horizon. Guy, um, and the underperformance has persisted for the year. It's down 13% for the year with the S&P 500 close to record highs. Yeah, and you mentioned the XBI, Mel. Obviously, that's a little bit different than the IBB. I think the biggest weight in the XBI is this company called Intellia, NTLA, at about 1.2% of the holdings are in that name. So obviously, it's extraordinarily diversified, but many names that we rarely, if ever, talk about. I always go to the IBB, but again, that's now heavily weighted the other way. You're talking about Moderna, Amgen, and Gilead probably makes up about 20% of the index. So to answer your question, each one of the three stocks that I just mentioned have their own specific story. I think Moderna might have finally sort of um, maybe found its way through. Obviously, you had that downgrade a few months ago. Didn't help. Then you had the Merck news. So a lot of different things weighing against Moderna. Found its footing today. Amgen's the one that sticks out to me like a sore thumb. I mean, this is trading at levels I think we last saw in the spring of 2020, they reported on November 2nd. I think IBB, if you believe in Amgen, which I do, and oh, by the way, if Gilead can ever get out of its own way, I think the IBB is really interesting at these levels. IBB is, is still up only, it's less than 3% at this point, and, and the difference between the two, of course, is IBB is market cap weighted, so you got the big heavyweights really holding down that index. But, um, you know, we highlighted the XBI mainly because it sort of, it gives equal weight to, to a lot of the holdings. And, Karen, if you wanted to play beta in biotech, that's where you would go uh, because they're sort of the mm-hmm. smaller companies in general. Right. They're smaller companies. And so a lot of them, they're, you know, have a, a very important product they're working on or an area that they're working on. And to me, they have a lot more upside and a lot more risk. And so, you know, we see what happens when you have a failed phase three trial or the data doesn't come out. I think was it just today? I think there was one um, uh, dermatological product down 40 percent. Um, so for me, I'm never comfortable taking those very specific bets. I don't have any exposure to the group right now, except for sort of on the spectrum, big cap tech, big cap pharma rather, which actually hasn't traded particularly well in the last couple of weeks. I would have thought it would have with rates rising and the P.E. multiples for that group being relatively low. But, it, you know, they just seem to be at the moment uh, susceptible to a downward trend, which is unfortunate, but I still think that's where the value is. And ultimately, they are going to be the acquirers of many in the biotech index. 
it's not an easy trade, Jeff Mills. I mean, we made that point time and time again. You really have to understand these stories and you have to understand clinical trials and different drug, you know, outcomes and things like that. It's, you know, in a world in which, you know, tech is probably the easiest trade to make or financials or the things that are very straightforward, do you think that has something to do with the low investor sentiment surrounding this group? I mean, it could. The stocks are so specific, like you said, relative to their individual stories that it's hard to have a great handle on every single one of them. And I feel like that's why when we talk about the space, we often talk about the ETFs, IBB, for example. You know, I think personally, as sort of a diversified play, thinking about IBB, that's always the ETF I think about. Um, I think it's a reasonable entry point here. You could be a little bit early. If you look at the chart, it still doesn't look great. It failed at that February high. It broke the 200-day moving average. It does have a decent amount of vaccine exposure, so thinking about 15% of the IBB in two stocks, you know, Moderna and BioNTech uh, up a lot, obviously. I would look to 145 to 150 as support there, but I think just generally speaking to your original point, and I think I said this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about biotech, it's still a really great way to get diversified exposure to a number of companies that are extremely innovative. I think over the next number of years, you're going to see you know, massive change in molecular medicine and all these other areas. So being able to get diversified exposure versus betting on one specific company is critical. I've talked about a company like Illumina a number of different times. They're the global leader in DNA sequencing. But even with a company like that, we get exposure to it through a fund of more thematic plays than going into just that name specifically. I think a lot of people out there believe in the power of medicine and of science, Tim. At the same time, we've seen leaps and bounds made in science and in medicine in the past year or two years and what have we seen in this etf nothing but pain for investors well we've seen we've seen some miracles in science and and certainly in medicine and COVID has had uh, a chance to look at just how sophisticated and revolutionary some of these drug companies can be um, but again we're talking about the difference between uh, an XBI and an IBB. IBB um, are companies that are, have great balance sheets are big companies and I don't think are terribly uh, risky in terms of at least their, their business models I think in the XBI it's very different and, and so those are companies that not only uh, seemingly have have an insatiable appetite for, for capital at a time when a lot of growth capital companies and a lot of high multiple companies peaked in February. Uh, I think a lot of these, I think, I think this story falls under that category. A lot of these companies are not profitable, are not even close to profitable, nor will be. Uh, and I think this is the deep end of the pool. And as everyone has outlined, that's why an ETF strategy for the lay person is something that makes a lot of sense. But um, again, I think Drug pricing overhang, FDA dynamics, capital raises, uh, high-risk asset class uh, is why at least the IBB, um, although down 13% on a one-year basis, so a little bit of an outperformance, um, is, is a better place to play. And, and I just think you have a case here where overall as an asset class, investors have shunned higher risk assets. And, and, and although the market has run, we have seen a change in character. Think about what SPACs have done. Think about what some of the, the EV technologies have done. Um, it hasn't been a good ride there either. I understand the, different, the difference that we're making between uh, IBB and XBI, but even if you look at the one-year performance in IBB, Guy, it's, it's severely underperformed the S&P 500 by about half. So I think the question is, in general, whether or not you go XBI or IBB, and I understand that there's a difference, is that biotech as a collective has underperformed the broader market at a time when the broader market has hit record highs. And so, in your view, is there opportunity, even given this underperformance, in the larger uh, vehicle. 
Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned XBI equal weighted, and I mentioned that, a bit, you know, when I say top holding, you're talking about something obviously at 1.2%. Mm-hmm. They're all effectively either side of 08 and 1.2%. And again, names that we don't talk about. So by definition, it's going to get smoothed out. So even if you have one that um, knocks the cover off the ball, the smoothing ne- mechanism, the entire thing, I don't think gives you enough bang for your buck. In terms of the IBB, to Jeff's point, you're getting comfortable with effectively a handful of names. I mentioned three. He mentioned BioNTech. I get it. You know, I do think it's interesting here because, quite frankly, you know, I think Moderna might have bottomed out. I think Amgen is extraordinarily valuable and cheap at these levels in terms of valuation. And as I said, if Gilead would just stop going lower for a day, you know, I think you're going to get some value on IBB. Okay. Well, our next guest is calling the Can big slide. Can I just slide add by- one thing? Oh, yeah, yeah, Karen, go ahead. All right, sorry. So some part of the, uh, the biotech, the smaller biotech space, used to be sort of the gambling part, right, mm-hmm. where there's huge risk, huge rewards. And I think that kind of money has actually migrated to other areas. So that would have been the marginal buyer here. And I think they're gone now. They're in meme stocks or Bitcoin or oh. somewhere else. That's an interesting point. Our next guest is calling the big slide in biotech the skid games, but he says this trade may be turning a corner. Let's bring in Jared Holtz, Managing Director of Healthcare Equities at Oppenheimer. Jared, what's with the underperformance? I think you guys nailed it. I mean, so many, so many facets and so many reasons for the underperformance. I mean, I think I look at it, you know, very simplistically, and, and you touched on many of the points earlier. So many asset classes and industry groups within equities are trading close to all-time highs, and they're so easy. The tech trade, the consumer discretionary trade, the return to normal trade, the interest rate trade, the crypto trade, the energy trade, these are all working so perfectly, it seems, almost day by day. And so you have you know, a high-risk group or a theoretically high-risk group like biotech, which is kind of um, in no man's land when you sort of look at it in that construct. And now we're sort of faced with, you know, what do we do from here? And, you know, there's not a clear cut answer as to, you know, when the right time is to get in. But I do think we're closer now than we have been. But this drawdown has been incredibly significant. Even when you take a look at the IBB, which is what our traders here on the panel tonight, you know, would like to focus on because just the, the weighting of it, the holdings, et cetera, et cetera. When you take a look at the largest components here, do you see that these components are near bottoms. I mean, can you say that there is leadership in this group that's ready to turn around to, to res- quote unquote, rescue this ETF? No, there, there is no leadership in, in larger cap biotech and pharma, as evidenced by, you know, many of these long term charts. You mentioned Amgen, Gilead. Gilead's been a flat stock for five years. So, you know, if you exclude Moderna and BioNTech, which have obviously been insane stocks over the past couple of years for obvious reasons, you're really not left with anything. Pfizer, um, you know, 20 years of, you know, if you look at pull up that chart, it hasn't moved in two decades. And so you're, you're left with large cap pharma, large cap biotech, which are really not leaders at all. And when you look at the, you know, the long term performance of many of these stocks, it doesn't leave a lot to be desired, especially for portfolio managers that can own anything. If they don't like the first layer of this group or the large cap names in this group, I think it's, it's a low probability event that they're going to want to peek under the hood and pick stocks that are that are smaller. 
So you mentioned Moderna and, and Pfizer, and I think maybe our viewers might want to dig into this a little bit more. Obviously, so much attention on the vaccine and what that means for these stocks. So you think about a Moderna where probably the vaccine is a lot more important versus a more diversified play like Pfizer. At this point, given the relative moves in the stocks and, and the landscape going forward for the vaccine and just the industry in general, where do you think you'd rather be in terms of the, the, the two different styles of those companies right now? Well, it's a difficult one. It's obviously you're dealing with two stocks that have, in, in my estimation, at least two you know very disparate investor bases. One that's much more momentum and retail driven, in Moderna and Pfizer, and more healthcare dedicated. But you know, I've been a disbeliever in the Moderna valuation in many respects for a while. So I think by default, I would rather own Pfizer here. But I understand the appeal to own a stock where there's headline news literally every day. We've gone almost 18 months with a press release or some other piece of news flow from Moderna. So I think, again, the market wants simplicity. We see it all around us and in tech. And you guys mentioned crypto and, and consumer. There is a simplicity factor to Moderna that I think makes it attractive over the near term. For me, stylistically, just having a valuation framework and some sort of ability to look at numbers that make any sort of sense Pfizer, but I do understand why some investors continue to gravitate toward Moderna. Jared, if you're a viewer out there and you're taking a look at IBB and you're thinking, oh, you know what, it doesn't sound like the prospects are very good. What can you tell that person in terms of where this ETF, where its components could be in, say, six months to a year? Well, I think so much of that depends on what the risk appetite is broadly. When you look at what investors like today and are they going to stick with the themes that have been working? Is large cap tech going to continue to lead? Are we going to get this reopening trade in perpetuity that's been, you know, many people's trading ideas for the better part of a year? Is energy going to continue to work? I think you really have to look at the outside influences when you look at whether large cap biotech is going to work. Now, when we look at the long term, you know, even two, three, four year charts of these companies, none of them look particularly great. So it, it's difficult to really tell what's going on here. To me, this is a more, it's more of a defensive trade. It's a very low PE group. I like that. I think that the prospects are still positive. There's R&D efforts being made every day. There's further consolidation, which is going to shore up pipelines. So yes, at some point, the group makes sense. But I understand um, you know, why investors are reticent. And I actually like the XBI more because it's come in more. And I think all of you know most of the uh, research and development that's getting the sort of the key focus is happening at these smaller companies. Jared, great to get your perspective on this. Appreciate it. Jared Holtz. Uh, tough to be a biotech analyst these days, Tim. <laughs> when you get an analyst saying you got to take a look at all the other factors in the market <laughs> to determine whether or not your group is going to go higher, that's, that's tough when you're a fundamental analyst. And six months ago, I, I would have looked at the chart on the IBB and said it's been one of the best long-term charts going. And I, I, I just think you run into, uh, again, I, I know we're trying to XBI or, or IBB it. Um, I mean, I think you, you have a, a case where you've got um, big cap names that all have issues growing their top line. And, and so look at Amgen. I mean, they've got declining businesses in asthma uh, and cancer. And the whole goal is to kind of extend the duration of these drugs. New last is being downgraded. So I, I think, you, you know, in the case of, of Gilead, you've got, you know, hep C, you've got HIV drugs that, that you know, fortunately have changed the world, but are not great for these drug companies. 
Um, and, and I think that's the story. The story is finding out tomorrow's uh, savior. There's a lot of concern about bad M&A. There's a lot of concern about chasing, you know, the next shiny object. And, and meanwhile, some of these companies really need to find growth, even though the balance sheets are OK. All right. We've got a news alert here out of the SEC. Let's get to Bob Bassani. He's got the details. Bob. Hello, Melissa. The staff of the SEC has released a long-awaited report that focuses on the meme stop craze that peaked in January of this year, particularly the trading around GameStop. What caused all that volatility? The report examined institutional accounts that had significant short interest in GameStop and concluded that while short covering was a factor, it was a small fraction of the overall buying volume. The staff concluded it was positive sentiment, not short covering that sustained the weeks-long price appreciation in GameStop. The commission staff considered but rejected other possible explanations for the price rise, including naked short-selling and a so-called gamma squeeze. Now, what, if anything, should be done about all this? The report is long on facts, but short on recommendations. For example, the report noted that some brokers, particularly Robinhood, experienced margin calls from its clearinghouse when GameStop's price spiked up. The author suggests shortening the settlement cycle, currently two days to one day or perhaps less. The report also urged the commissioners to consider whether game-like features in trading apps may lead investors to trade more than they would otherwise. On payment for order flow, the report noted that the wholesalers who executed those orders did so internally, and so their trades were less visible to the wider market. On short sales, the report said that improved reporting of short sales would allow regulators to better track what happens when short sales do occur. Still, investors expecting imminent action from the SEC is likely to be disappointed. This is a staff report that outlines the facts but contains only very general recommendations of what the SEC commissioners might do. Now, Melissa, tomorrow, 9.35 a.m. Eastern Time, we'll have Gary Gensler on, the chair of the SEC, to discuss the findings. But, for example, already people are commenting, uh, was there manipulation involved? It doesn't say in the report whether there was or wasn't. Uh, Gary Gensler has has had talking points for months on payment for order flow, on gamification uh, of trading. Was there demonstrable harm because of this trading, and was payment for order flow part of that harm? The report doesn't come to any particular conclusions on that. So I think, Melissa, what we're going to have here is they're going to have the report sent to the commission. The commission commissioners are going to have to debate what, if any, rules they might want to enact around it. Melissa? Does this make any sense to you, Bob? I mean, for GameStop to go to $483 a share and, and say it's just simply the retail buying frenzy that sent it higher in a small, small fraction of that was short selling or, or short covering? I think that there is probably something clear that could come out of this that will help the general public. For example, we need greater clarification on short sales and who's short and maybe much more disclosure on that. Uh, They seem to believe that a sort of frenzy occurred, essentially. Uh, They they called it just strong buying sentiment that actually moved things forward. I think the bigger concern here is Chair Gensler has had four or five talking points for months, including payment for order flow and gamification of trading. Those are standard comments that he makes every time saying we need to look into this. The staff report has had an opportunity to draw a connection here and say payment for order flow was part of the problem. And it doesn't really conclude that. It also doesn't conclude it points out that gamification exists, but it doesn't draw a line between what happened in GameStop and gamification of trading and make a clear connection, for example. I think that's going to be the criticism of the report. And I think the SEC probably would say, you know, that might not be the 
purposes of this. These reports are really fact-finding missions. They're historical statements of what happened. It's going to be up to other people to sort of draw regulatory conclusions and whether we need new rules or things like that. That's the job of the commissioners at this right. point. And we'll get a comment from Gensler tomorrow about where he's going to go next with this. Look forward to that interview. Thank you, Bob. Bob Pisani. Okay. Karen, what do you what do you make of that? And and having to report if you're a short seller and you have to report more to the SEC, that's that's not good. Well, uh, it makes sense to me, though, right? I, you you do have to disclose on the long side, and I know the basis for that was do you own votes and can you can you you know have some say on the outcome? Where if you're short, you don't you're not you know you don't have any votes. But I do think in the markets it's fair to expect short sellers to have to disclose their position. I don't know when. Do we have that same limit of 5 percent? I'm not sure. But that seems to me something that would be very worthwhile. In terms of the short, though, I mean, I, if you think about great shorts, like uh, great squeezes, rather, like Porsche VW, and that went up and down all within four days, I can't believe that we're still here with the stock in GameStop at wherever it is, I don't know, 180 some odd today. That's sort of amazing. That's more amazing to me, actually. Right. And we've seen that time and time again with these meme stocks. People will jump to say this is a flash in the pan. And here we are. We're still talking about them. and The stocks are still elevated. Um, Jeff Bills, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on the SEC's findings. I mean, the things that we thought were part of the mechanics of that move higher to 483 end up not to be part of the mechanics of the move to 483. Yeah, and I think ultimately you're not going to get some neat story wrapped up in a bow that's exactly what everybody wants it to be. I think I've said from the beginning, but if anything good comes out of this, it's going to be these sorts of reports that hopefully continue to push the envelope, whether it's quicker settlement, whether it's more transparency. But this isn't going to be fast moving. Um, I think that's probably stating the obvious. Uh, relative to the, the short sales, you know, I think it was more of the the notion of naked short selling and all these things going on behind the scenes that galvanized this frenzy of buying versus the reality of those things actually taking place or at least taking place to the extent that would actually move the stock the way that it did. So I can actually buy that argument. And if I look at GameStop now, again, stating the obvious, it it looks stuck to me. I mean, it it hasn't moved in about a year. Uh, To Karen's point, it's actually impressive that it's held the price level so far. But what's the catalyst Uh, for that next move higher. I'm not sure that there is one. All right. Coming up, the streaming wars rage on as Disney and Netflix both make headlines today. Our next guest is breaking down Disney's new dilemma, as well as what has Netflix inking higher. But first, a home buying halt. Shares of Zillow dropping after reports the company is pausing its home purchasing service. The traders are on Neighborhood Watch next. Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money right after this. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. 
That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Zillow falling hard in today's session. The stock having its worst day since last November as the company temporarily halts its home buying business. Let's get to Diana Olick, who's got the details. Diana. Yeah, Melissa, Zillow is blaming what else? Supply chain issues and a labor shortage. I feel like that's all we ever talk about. But they say that's why the pause in its iBuying business, all making it more difficult to renovate the homes that they're buying. Zillow COO Jeremy Waxman said in a release, we have not been exempt from these marketing capacity issues and we now have an operational backlog for renovations and closings. Pausing new contracts will enable us to focus on sellers already under contract with us and our current home inventory. iBuyers like Zillow offer homeowners cash to buy direct, generally at a slight discount, the strategy being that homeowners would rather not go through the tedious task of putting the house on the market and then paying a broker commission. The iBuyers rehab the home and sell it, hopefully, at a profit. Now, stocks of other iBuyers like Open Door, OfferPad, and Redfin not reacting that much to the news. The CEO of Redfin, Glenn Kelman, told me they've had supply chain issues for years as well, and it sometimes limits the number of the number or types of homes they can purchase, but that they are, quote, wide open for business, he said. And a spokesman for Open Door also suggests they, too, are still open for business. Melissa. All right. Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. Um, Karen, it sounds like a Zillow issue. It does, although it's sort of curious that the other ones aren't having the same issue. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess I'll take them at their word. There was that negative publicity a few weeks ago about them going in, buying a bunch of houses in a neighborhood and sort of marking it up. I don't know if that has anything to do with it or really it is a supply issue, a a supply chain issue. I remember when they pivoted and went into this business. I thought, wow, that is a big change from an asset light business to an asset heavy business. But their timing was great. It's been a great business for them. I understand why the stock is down today. It should be, assuming that what the problem is is what they say it is, and that could be. I I believe them at that, but it's a little curious that others don't have the same problem. Yeah. Guy, what are your thoughts on this? Well, Wall Street Journal heard on the street, I mean, they pretty much said it's a a Zillow-specific thing. They said just poor planning on their part. And, And the other thing I take away, go back to their earnings release in August, I think, I mean, the price targets I saw post-earnings are anywhere between 125 to 195. You're going to have to see a lot of analysts ratchet those price targets down, which means obviously they're behind the curve. But I guess what I'm trying to say is the move to the downside is probably not over. I think you can round trip the entire move from last August when it was a $65 stock um, to where we are now. I think you could see that final 10 bucks or so to the downside. Wow. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. A streamer slugfest. Disney and Netflix back in the ring as the streaming wars rage on. The traders are binging this trade next. Plus, the future of Bitcoin, or futures to be exact. The first Bitcoin futures ETF launching tomorrow. So what's next for the crypto craze? You're watching Fast Money, live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. 
That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares at Disney sinking 3% following a downgrade by Barclays. The firm setting a slowdown in subscriber growth for Disney Plus, and it's not just Disney under pressure. Credit Suisse is starting to get concerned about the entire streaming landscape. Analysts point, putting out a new note today saying Q3 is expected to be the slowest quarter for new subscriber growth for streamers in their coverage universe since the pandemic began. All this comes as we gear up for Netflix earnings after the bell tomorrow, shares up ahead of that report. So is there trouble brewing in the streaming world? Let's bring in Rich Greenfield, the co-founder and partner of Lightshed Partners. Rich, great to have you with us. Um, Thanks for having me, Melissa. I don't want to ask you about a, a competitor's research report, but the point being made here is a broad one, and that is that there's not enough content to fuel the growth that we've seen for Disney+. Plus. Would you agree with that, that the cadence of content is too slow to, to, to power the growth to which the, the multiple must, you know, where the multiple makes sense? Look, we put out a piece earlier today that basically spoke to just that, that essentially Disney's losing time spent. So they're, they've grown subscribers. They've done an incredible job. I mean, what the team at Disney has done over the last couple of years, it's been almost two years since the launch of Disney Plus, is incredible. And I think consumers have an absolute love of the Disney brand. They love Marvel. They love Star Wars. There's been just a voracious appetite to sign up. But signing up is different than using. And I think the reality is there isn't enough new high-profile content on Disney Plus They've really tapped into sort of the meat of their market. You know, they they've really captured their their you know their market very very quickly, far faster than anyone expected. The question is now, how do you keep growing? You know, obviously Hulu's had some good growth too, but the question is, Disney, unlike other services, certainly unlike Netflix, doesn't have the diversity of content. Meaning, they've got all the Marvel fans now. They've got all the Star Wars fans. How do you keep growing? You know, you look at a show like. Um, only murderers in the building which is on hulu and is a great piece of content why is it not on disney plus trying to build a diversified service is really hard when you're very much sort of siloed into the content verticals that disney is and then on top of that melissa i think sort of the the decision that the management team made is they weren't going to use their new theatrical films anymore to drive the streaming service they chose to go back to movie theaters so unlike putting them directly onto Disney Plus, the way HBO is doing this year, Disney decided to go back to theaters, starting with Shang-Chi back in September. And so the the fourth quarter is actually very light content-wise, and so it's not terribly surprising that Disney is seeing a slowdown, especially as competition is growing pretty significantly all around. Rich, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. When you look at the landscape of streaming, is is there any is there any landscape left to grab in this land grab? And what about who who out there like a Paramount Plus? You know, do they have a chance or Peacock or some First of the of all, ones every, that are smaller? Well, look, I'd say it's still very early days. Remember, you still have Karen. You have seventy five million people paying for linear television bundles, whether that's through Comcast or Charter or you know, direct TV, there's still, you know, 75 million homes that are paying for that. You know, usage is obviously outside of sort of the NFL has come down pretty dramatically. And so as you think about sort of wallet share shifting away from linear legacy cable bundles to all these streaming services, there's a tremendous amount of runway, not to mention, look at what's happening overseas in terms of the global opportunity. 
yes, it's being built out quickly in Europe and Latin America, but Asia is still very, very early days. Markets like India just very much beginning. And so I think there's a huge runway. I mean, Netflix is the biggest of all of them with a little over 200 million subscribers. But I don't think there's any reason why Netflix can't be, you know, triple the size of where they are over time. In terms of the other upstarts, it, it really comes down to focus. You know, we just were talking about Disney balancing their theatrical business, so their legacy theatrical business, with Disney+. Plus. They put Dancing with the Stars on ABC. They put Only Murderers on who? Like, choosing what content goes where is a problem that every single legacy media company has. So when you look at whether we're talking about Paramount+, Plus or we're talking about Discovery+, Plus or we're talking about Peacock, it's all about decisions. The management teams have the assets. The amount of content at their disposal It's just a matter of whether they want to put all of their everything they have into streaming and go, you know, quote unquote, all in or whether they're trying to balance sort of do some streaming, but keep their legacy businesses vibrant. And so that push and pull is very, very hard. And like Netflix doesn't think about that. Amazon doesn't think about that. Apple doesn't think about that at all. Rich, thank you. Good to see you. Rich Greenfield. Light shed. Tim. Never thought about the problem that way, but it is a difficult thing to balance. Where do you put which content? Well, I agree with that. Uh, I think we've also, though, priced in the the decline of legacy TV and all of the networks under ABC and ESPN and whatnot. So um, great point by Rich, as always. And and I think if you look at uh, Netflix, what they don't think about is profitability. I mean, there's companies that's really never, do, you know, has uh, always been a cash burn story, hasn't really ever been profitable. Uh, and so far, it's been working. I, I just simply say, look at look at Disney versus Netflix as a pair trade. And it's been a remarkably good pair trade just in terms of vol over the last two years. Yet Disney outperformed by 60%, then Netflix by 50% uh, in the next six months. Go back, go back two and a half years. Um, Netflix has now outperformed Disney by about 25% in the last three months. Uh, I think that probably continues a bit here. No one really cares about their profitability. And I think we priced in the COVID pull forward. Yeah. How are we set up, um, Guy, just quickly going into earnings tomorrow for Netflix? I think for Netflix, probably not great, to be honest with you. I mean, it's a tremendous run. So that I think the clever thing to do would probably take money off the table. And that's coming from somebody that thinks Netflix is probably going to go significantly higher over the next few months. In terms of Disney, just, you know, the flip side of the Disney coin is I think it was September 23rd. J.P. Morgan, of all people, added it to their focus list with a $220 price target. So it just goes to show there are two sides of every market. I think Disney actually... In the mid-160s, if it gets there, it's going to get interesting again. All right. Well, Kramer is taking the other side of today's Disney downgrade. Find out why Jim is sticking by this stock. By signing up for the CNBC Investment Club newsletter, all the information to sign up right there on your screen. Coming up, the day we've all been waiting for. The first Bitcoin futures ETF set to launch tomorrow as the crypto surges in recent weeks. More on that next when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin holding above the $61,000 mark as the market gears up for the launch of the first Bitcoin futures ETF tomorrow. So does this uh, launch clear the way for more names to enter the field? Let's get to Kate Rooney for more on that. Hey, Kate. Hey, Melissa. ProShares ETF may be the first to market, but it probably won't be the last. There are a group of similar futures-based Bitcoin ETFs waiting in the wings, and they could go live by the end of this year. Tomorrow's ETF debut is from ProShares. It'll hold Bitcoin futures contracts on the CME, and we have Invesco, 
with a similar application in the works, VanEck and Valkyrie as well. Those are all on the watch list. And while ProShares may have a slight advantage as a first mover, it may only be by a couple of days or a couple of weeks. And that leaves those other names to compete on fees potentially or even things like brand awareness. The other big name to watch here, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. It's the world's largest Bitcoin fund uh, with about 3.5% of all global Bitcoin supply in that fund. It's been the main on-ramp for investors like Kathy Wood, for example, to get exposure to crypto. Grayscale confirming today that it does plan to convert that fund to a spot ETF eventually. And CEO Michael Sonnenschein telling Squawk Box this morning that he expects competitive pressure going forward and they stand ready to reduce fees. But one other big thing analysts have been watching, the Grayscale discounting. It used to be a premium But it's been trading at a discount, a roughly 15 percent discount to the price of Bitcoin since earlier this year. That's been blamed on a six month lockup period of initial investments in that fund. Holders aren't able to redeem shares and react to Bitcoin's market price in real time. Sources have been telling me the traders in some cases are buying Grayscale, betting that that spread would collapse if it is approved as an ETF. And they're using it as sort of a way to buy Bitcoin at a discount. Melissa. Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney. Karen, we actually have talked about this in the past, that discount. I'm wondering mm-hmm. what your thoughts on that is. Seems like it would have to close. It would have to trade apart at some point if it's going to be an ETF that's reflective of the price. Right. This is the kind of thing you and I talk about, actually, the, the GBTC <laughs> discount. Right. I mean, in prior, right, in its prior life, before there were other products, it actually had that premium when Bitcoin was in a frenzy and it, you know, people would pay over, which never quite understood. But I don't know how easy it is going to be for them to convert. But at the discount here, it's practically as wide as it's been. I think 21 or two is as wide as it's been. I think it was 18 today. So I don't know. You know, uh, Kate mentioned maybe people buying that. I, can you short the future against it and see if that spread narrows? That would seem to be a not super risky bet. But you'd have to, it sounds like, hang on to your, your GBTC for a while. I, I think this this size of this discount is interesting. Yeah. Jeff? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's something investors just need to pay attention to in terms of the tracking area associated with some of these things that aren't actually owning the cryptocurrency. You know, I think I think that's that's super important. If you look at the past year, Bitcoin up over 300 percent, Grayscale up a little less than 200 percent. So there is going to be a massive difference when you're not actually holding Bitcoin. I think that's important. There'll be less of a difference uh, in a futures ETF, for example, but still, you're not owning Bitcoin, so I think that's important to know, and it's not going to track the spot price. Again, I think the holy grail is you know, an ETF that d- invests directly in Bitcoin. I think this is a, a step in that direction, uh, but we're not there yet, and the timing's uncertain. So in terms of the narrowing of that discount, the timing is uncertain there, too. All right. Coming up, short seller Jim Chanos taking aim against one tech giant accusing the company of, quote unquote, financial engineering. We've got the details when we return. Check out shares of Macy's topping the tape today and soaring 17.5 percent. You'll remember that just days ago, activist investor Jana Partners took a stake in Macy's, urging it to spin off its e-commerce unit. Today's pop follows reports that the e-commerce unit of Saks is preparing for an IPO with a valuation roughly triple what it was pegged at earlier this year. Karen, I don't know how you figure out a valuation of a company, of a unit that is so tightly um, connected to the parent company. Yeah, we, I don't know how you figure out where it happens to sales that 
are done in the store and then go online for returns or vice versa. I'm not, I guess they could use the Saks model, however they figured it out. But also Macy's has some debt. I wonder where the debt goes. I would think it stays with the sort of old line company. But all that having been said, I mean, what a year for, for Tim's Macy's. I don't own it, but uh, clearly maybe Jana knew that they would, uh, that Saks was considering this IPO. Good for them. I mean, 17.5% today. I mean, it's gone up at least a few times on the same news team. What do you do with the stock? You still hold it? Well, I mean, look, look again, look at the 15% short interest and, and, and imagine what you're feeling right now if you're short, as we talked about uh, earlier in the show. I, I just think that there's, there's an argument here that, uh, first of all, this is generating free cash flow. It's got intrinsic value with real estate. And, and look, the Saks benchmark is, is pretty extraordinary when you think um, Saks was taken private um, for about a billion and a half. They then spun off the e-commerce unit and got an investment uh, you know, last year from Insight Partners for, for a, a two billion valuation when they had a billion in sales. So a two times sales. Now they're talking about six billion for that same unit. Um, and I don't know where sales are, but let's call it, a, you know, five times sales. Um, and, and so start to impute that upon the e-commerce business at Macy's, which is going to be 43 percent soon. Uh, you know, it, it, the numbers get very interesting and the short interest gets very nervous. All right. Shares of IBM, meantime, coming under pressure today and some comments made by short seller Jim Chanos right here on CNBC. What's so fascinating about IBM to us is that it's a good example of what I teach my class here at Wisconsin today about the idea of, of sometimes the, the, the greatest scams are hiding right in plain sight um, through the use of pro forma accounting. And what I wanted to point out to your listeners or your viewers is that, you know, IBM's supposed to earn almost $11 this year. For the trailing 12 months, they've earned less than $9. Um, but the really fascinating thing from our perspective if you look at IBM's operating earnings and add their IP royalty stream and tax it at a, at a normal 21%, the actual earnings are $6. IBM responded, firing back, telling CNBC in part, IBM never gave an $11 EPS expectation. You can read IBM's full statement on CNBC Pro. Um, Guy Dami, we've talked a long time about financial engineering in the context of IBM. And the fact that, well, I mean, if in fact that is what's going on, it did a pretty miserable job because the stock's been in an eight-year downtrend. I mean, recently, seemingly, we've broken that downtrend. But with that said, I mean, it obviously has been an underperformer on a tape that's just been magnificent. And the company that has not been able to sort of turn things around despite a huge acquisition, obviously, in the form of Red Hat, which you have to wonder at some point, you know, does that start to pay dividends? I, you know, Jim Chanos does extraordinary work. I'm sure he's watching right now. You know, when he puts something out there like this, he's not being glib, and he's obviously done the work to support it. This earnings release, I think on this Wednesday, is going to be as fascinating an IBM release as we've seen probably in the last 10 years, based on what Jim just said. I mean, Jeff, one of the greatest scams, some of the greatest scams are hiding in plain sight. The strong words. How do you feel about IBM? Yeah. Yeah, very strong words. I think the most interesting thing about IBM to me is that it's actually not cheap, financial engineering or not, on a forward PE basis. If you go back and look, out, look through history, it's expensive as it's been 
since 2008. So, you know, they've, they've lost market share across all of their segments. It's just been a tough business. And shockingly to me, the valuation is not more attractive just given how the stock has performed recently. So it, it's still a tough story overall for me. All right, coming up, a killer weekend for AMC. We'll tell you how options traders are playing this one after the theater chain slayed the box office this weekend. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Back right after this. Welcome back. AMC jumping higher today. The theater chain seeing a strong weekend surge thanks in part to Universal Pictures' Halloween Kills, slaying it at the box office. CNBC's parent company Comcast owns Universal. And guess who made a trip to the movies? Our own Dan Nathan catching the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, this weekend. And Dan really enjoyed his movie time, saying he's starting to understand the AMC apes. There's a picture of a bar, by, by, um, by the way. Um, some unusual options activity on AMC today was spotted, though. Mike Co joins us now to break down the action. Mike. Well, a lot of activity. I'm not sure how unusual it is. AMC was the fourth most active single stock option today. And I say that bearing in mind that actually it's usually in the top 10. It is a very popular stock option trading up there with names like Apple, even though it's less than one thousandth the size of that company. The most active options that we saw were the weekly 43 strike calls. Over 50,000 of those were trading hands for about $1.71 on average apiece. The average trade size was about five contracts, indicating that most of this flow was retail. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the rally that we're seeing in these shares could continue through week's end, and that's betting that the stock is going to be above 44.70 by Friday. All right, Mike, thank you. Mike Co. for more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And do not miss the first uninterview with AMC Chairman and CEO Adam Aaron. That's tomorrow, 2.15 Eastern Time, right here on CNBC. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the Final Trade, Tim. Red counts have doubled in the last year. Schlumberger reports later in the week. I think it takes out that 36.50 high. Karen. Yes, if you've been waiting to buy Bitcoin, wait again. Tomorrow may be a really big buy the rumor, sell the news. Jeff Mills. I have a look at Prudential here. You know, I think the cyclical tone we've seen in the market continues. This is a stock with 14 analysts covering it, two buy ratings, breaking out of an eight-month range. I think it goes higher. Guy. Biogen has round-turned the entire move from June until now. Biogen ahead of earnings on Wednesday. See us back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money starts right now. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.